This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Like the kōkako, the saddleback, or tieke, belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos, made possible by support from the Peace and Disarmament Education Trust. Good day, friends. Uh, you'll be hearing this uh, pre-recorded because naturally we're obeying the uh, lockdown for uh, Alert 4. Welcome back to Community or Chaos. And we have with us, fortunate, very lucky to have with us, Matt McCartan, who's a union organizer and also helped start the first the New Labour Party in opposition to Roger Douglas and what they were doing in those days, and then the Alliance. And he's also works as an organizer of the Hotel Workers Union and Hospital Workers Union to help start. Unite Union and One Union, which he will talk to us about that and other issues of interest to people concerned with uh, the direction in New Zealand. Now, Matt, could you briefly discuss your childhood and why your childhood might have motivated you to become a left-wing activist? Mm. Oh. Kia ora, brother. Thanks, thanks for having me on the show. We haven't talked to each other for a very long time. Oh, we used to. Yeah, you Sorry? When we were organising the New Labour Party and they all right, had- That's right, that's right. And you're a cranky old left winger then, so things have changed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, the, crank, the, crank, the, crank, the cranky left wing branch from, <laughs> uh, from Dunedin. Uh, yeah. so I'm still in good heart. I still catch up with a few of your old comrades. And we did a lot of uh, policy demands for this. Indeed, 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 indeed. It was you, you, you were the guys who kept the faith, and I'm very uh, proud as that you're still keeping it, brother. You know, and uh, and you and uh, the, the late great uh, Jim Flynn were, Flynn, yes. were 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 the two uh, the, the two with. Well, with American twangs who, yes. who, 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 who were an aberration. Uh, <laughs> but um, that's because you bought all that wealth of experience. So I, I always am, am, am sort of you judge someone by their politics. You get all these young, smart, hung, hungry things. And I always say, well, come back to me as when you're thir- thir- 30. If you're still in pol- involved in politics then, 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 then it's all real. Uh, 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 mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just a tourist and just passing through. But you, uh, brother, you've kept the faith all the way through. Well, so, sometimes I, I wish it wasn't so real. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Yeah. Well, anyway, look, like, yeah. look like, like, like all of us, right, we're all uh, products of our backgrounds, you know? But the truth doesn't really change. I mean, we can change, but what's happening doesn't. I mean, you can't change. Well, what is truth? It's, it's not happening anymore. Well, then what is truth, isn't it? We're, 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 we're postmodernists now, right? Young, oh, yes. I mean, well, well, look at your countryman, old Trump, you see. He, he just makes it up. It's all, yeah, it's, it's just, he just has a, and almost half the population. Uh, well, they, oh, I don't know about where they believe it. I, I mean, it's just been astounding. Um, it would say a lot about their education system, but I think it's a domination of, um, of media by the corporate world. They, and they don't care what nonsense they, they spread as long as they get in eyes and clicks. And I think that's what media now has 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 descended in all into. So you know, I look at the here on our local rag here up up in Auckland. It's like its main thing is selling real estate. You know, yeah. it's just endless. You know, everything's hyped up, sell, 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 and, it, and it's put up as news, but it's not. It's all property. Um, and 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 they have and they had the, the, the promote they call it one roof. But I suspect that they are the own that 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 company. That news media now is not a news media; it's selling advertising. That's its main purpose. Selling cars or, or and, yeah, well, cars or whatever. But 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 that's what they do. And the news is an, is incidental. I have to say, I have some time for the Otago Daily Times. One thing; it's the only one still owned. In well, news. it's the last bastion, and that's probably what 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 keeps the left alive in your town you know i mean at least it's um it's 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 a modest uh and it's political they, position i believe they've actually made themselves into a trust so it'd be hard to sell overseas oh is that right oh i could be that. wrong about that oh well who knows um <laughs> oh well someone some oh one of your listeners will know um but um you asked me a question about yes. a bit about my background um you're right i've been involved in politics now well, I can't remember as when, as when I wasn't really. Um, <laughs> um, you know, we're kind of on on, on the. You old, feel really old when you ask that question. Yeah, well, you know, it's just been a way of life, isn't it? Really, I mean. Um, uh, so my background, um, uh, as I said before, as we started the show, is that you know I'm always a great believer is that we are products of our backgrounds, our environment. And then, of course, then you get a brain, you start to think about the world, but you have an instinct uh, which comes from, from your background. So I was raised in an orphanage, um, uh, fourth generation of orphanages, not because it seems just sort of like astounding, is, is that, um, you know, that, that, that kids are brought up um, away from the nuclear family, which uh, everyone like, oh, likes to pretend it still, it still exists. But... But I, I was brought up in an orphanage, and I think that shaped me, of course. Um, and it wasn't a bad background at all. I mean, I was, first I was brought up in a nunnery um, in the Home of Compassion in uh, Wellington until I was five, till I went to school. And I think that had a big effect on me. I didn't quite understand it, but I think I never had violence. I never, you know, I was always felt a very um, supportive background as a child. Um, and then... Um, and it was no surprise because um, um, the 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 nuns, the woman who uh, sister Abir, Abir um, who um, started that that, that 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 home up, her vision was about you know is that all and she worked in the Maori community and 
she took the orphans, um, Māori orphans, and then raised them. And her mission was they were the gift from God and in, in, in her thing. So they were a very liberal sort of order. Um, and um, so I was raised by them until I was five. And then I was raised by the brethren, a bit more, you know, fun, fundamentalists. But, you know, I mean, it wasn't brutal, you know. I mean, it's tough at times, but it wasn't brutal. But it was the religious thing which which they'd rammed down, sort of down, down, down your throat, which I never bought into, you know, because it made me think, but maybe read and try and understand the world around me. Very structured, very disciplined. So it made me think. And um, so I think what taught me was, I was a very sick kid, so I read a lot. And um, so my heroes were people uh, were, were people in books. You mean Jack London? Sorry? Jack London? Oh, indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, but I was actually uh, influenced mainly by, um, oh, a num- number of people, but um, 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 American writers, actually. Um, I don't know why. I don't know why. I, I just went to the libraries and just read political books. I mean, they become political books. I mean, you start with rap really affected me. I'm sorry? The Grapes of Rap. I, 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 I was going to say, John Steinbeck's book was the first political book I read, you know? Well, and, and what I was trying to do was read through his, The Grapes of Wrath about how would you solve the problem? Of the depression, of the homelessness, of despair, and that's what. And 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 I was really moved by that. I read it as when I was in Dunedin, actually, as a kid. I remember I wrote a review of it for my subject at the time. I remember it was the first assignment I'd ever done. I actually enjoyed doing, you know. And I wrote, you know, like a like two or three pages, which for a you know a fifteen year old kid is, is 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 actually quite a hard thing to do. But yes. I, I, I was really moved by that, and I think that has led my politics in, in a more conscious way because it made me think about how would you resolve this? And so that's been the question of what is to be done. My mother and my, her parents lived through it. Oh. They were from Oklahoma, and they... Oh, okay. So oh, they were God. living out there. He lost a farm. Every, both sides of my family lost farms during the oh. Great Depression. Oh, Dust Bowl. He, uh, well, I add to the store, Hori, because you raised a good point. So I, I, I met an American girl at um, at uh, a conference, a Labor Notes conference in the States, and she had, well, she was an intern at the time at the automobile workers in old in Detroit. But she was from Cal, California, so we had a uh, a weekend away in California before I came back to uh, to New Zealand. She came after that to come and stay with me. Um, but 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 she um, it was in California. But we we're driving through. We we're going up to Yosemite. You'll know that well. And yeah. um, we went through this area, and she asked me about the books, and I said about the John Steinbeck, you know, the great the great the greats of growth. And she goes, "Oh my God." She goes, we are driving through the area of where the Greats of Wrath was about. And she and then she then explained about the history of of that part of the um of California. But she yeah. her fam- family, funny enough, had migrated to Cal California, same thing from Oklahoma and uh, from oh, from the Dust Bowls. And so she came from that, her family came from that history. And that that book was totally accurate, by the way. 
Oh, good. Well, I'm pleased about that. But she, she, um, so she said to me that she fell in love with me from that moment on. You see, because up to then I was just this key Kiwi boy from, oh, well, from the other side, 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 side of the world, who, who, who shot his mouth off. But she says, once I had explained the influence that John Steinbeck had had on me, she goes. I'll, I'll have him as a boyfriend, she said. <laughs> <laughs> so there's all good things that happen, brother. So that's it. Now, when I, my, 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 my father died, he was an alcoholic sort of on the streets, um, unfortunately, and, uh, you know, just a broken man, really. So he died on the streets in Wellington um, and as a pauper, as a very sick man. And so I was... Um, moved from the orphanage I was in at the age of um, nearly 15 and moved to Dunedin because my mother was there. And she was hiding out from her family, changed name because, um, you know, she'd been broken in her life as well. And um, and that's just a dreadful story, a tragic story. So I went to live with her in Dunedin for about a year and then um, moved out uh, while I was still at school. So, um, so, you know, the working poor, they're my tribe. So my politics are driven by my tribe, which is so I, I'm, an, I, I'm a class politician. You know, I, I'm, I'm big on the economic questions. So that's what drive, drives me. And so I think that's the principal question of economics, of who controls the economic levers. And, and so I think it is a class question. And I think that the issues of gender, of race, of sexuality, of people being disabled or disadvantaged in other way, quite frankly, they're all just human rights, you know, and I don't, and I, and I don't, uh, um, I'm not someone who adheres to, is that these things are, are, are above the class fight, I, I don't, I just think they are, they're not even part of it, it's just a given, you know, if you're a socialist, like you and I, Marvin, and we actually believe it's equality for all, then it doesn't really quite air any thinking to move on to, well, whoever you are and wherever you come from, you should all be empowered and receive the same privileges as those who are benefiting. So it's just like a no thing. So I don't spend a lot of my time in thinking about those issues. I, I just don't uh, because I think the real issue is the 1% and the destruction of which they're going to destroy this world in, in the end if we don't fight them. And for that, we need to um, support PPPP people being given the opportunity and lifted up um, uh, to have a, a, a life and be able to have time for thinking, of reading, of having health and, 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 and a home to live in and, and, and things like that. And then, so unless you have that, you know, the Maslow la 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 ladder of needs, you can't address the bigger questions of any society if people are living in a garage or on the street. You know, like it's just like a no-brainer to me. So I'm a big advocate addressing civil society in terms of its economic delivery to um, all people. This is why you decided not to go to university but to go into the workforce. No, 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 it wasn't. No, when I say it's a con, it was a conscious decision not to. And partly, Marvin, I mean, I, I, I was working when I was at high school. You know, my last year and a bit, year and a half, I was working full time. You know, and I was um, like, I left home at fifteen, 
I'd live with my ma, ma, mother for a year. It wasn't great. Um, you know, when you've got the boyfriend who comes and beats her up most nights, you know, you just, I, 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 I can't live in this environment. Um, um, and so I, I, I left. And then I, I but I, I knew if I didn't go to school, um, uh, and most of the kids around my area, I was 15, they used to call me the professor, right? So that's kind of the community, community of which we were in. So I think I was the only one who wasn't in a gang, you know? Um, um, although in politics, you know, you are gangs, re- re- sort of rare, really different, different sort of gangs. But but I I went and worked, so cleaning first at the hospital, the Dunedin Public Hospital, then um, at, out of these hotels would probably don't exist now, but washed the dishes in the weekends. And then uh, my last year and a half, I worked in a La Scala restaurant. It wouldn't be open now, I don't think, in Anderson's Bay. And that was uh, almost a full-time job. So, you know, it, it, you know, so after doing that for nearly two years, two and a half years with the part-time job at the hospital, I was just exhausted, really, just exhausted. And I just thought, I can't do this for, for another three or four years. I just can't. So I met a girl who was going to go to university. So I, I, I was going to go to, U, to U, U, university. Then I met this beautiful girl at the campus, beautiful woman. <laughs> and I had a, motor, mo, a, mo, a mo, motorbike in those days. So I said, where are you from? She goes, I'm from Queensland. I always want to go to Queensland. Why don't you? So the next day we got on my motorbike, went to, Queen, to Queen, Queenstown for a weekend and we never came back. So I never regretted it. Um, and so I had a I had a lovely time in Queensland. I was there for two years. And that was my university, really on the work sites. And um, I've talked about this a bit in a book um, I wrote a few year, year, years back. But it was the first strike uh, or first industrial dispute I'd ever been involved in. And because um, I was about the only Kiwi in town in those days, um, all the rest were foreigners. Um, that I was one of the committee for the strike and um and i think that that was my defining thing of being a working class or identifying as working class and how mass action can change things for the better and direct action so in one sense i probably i started off as a syndicalist and i read a lot on the wobblies at the time um and um and you know that that was an important part of my uh consciousness um, and it was a strike we had. We took over the town sort of bay, 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 basically, and won the blue uh, for a week. We were basically sort of, we worked to rule in town for a week without even the union officials e- even knowing what was going on because we were in Queenstown, you know. So we, it was a self, it was a worker-controlled um, environment. I was 18, um, and um, it was a huge, huge Turn, turning point point for me, and I think that's driven my politics of faith in the masses, faith in the working class, and faith in self or, or organisation. So that was, um, I think, my critical moment of determining my politics. So I've always worked, worked as you know, Martin, in mass work. You know, yeah. I do union work for our tribe, but I do politics or parliamentary politics as another area because who makes the rules matters you know i'm not someone who believes in being abdicating from from parliamentary politics you know i've I've never bonded to be i I never chose to be a member of parliament it wasn't a path that i thought it suited 
what I want to do, but I respect though those who do it. I'm I'm a I'm a supporter of those of good MPs. Um, uh, you know, and you've got a couple of good MPs in in Dunedin. I I I I think they that they, they are in the top half, if not the top quarter, quarter of caliber of MPs in Parliament. Mm. Okay, we might have a bit of music here. That was power, and there was power in the union with Billy Bragg. And you can um, podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and going to podcasts, then going to Community or Chaos. And this will be on podcast relatively soon. We're talking with Matt McCartan, union organizer, and a person who helped start two of the more useful unions in this, I mean, political parties in this country, the New Labour Party and the Alliance. Matt, you were a member of the Labour Party in the 80s. Why did you leave? Um, you had to be there <laughs> at the time. 
So when I was a union activist, a young worker activist, I was the I was at that point I was the president of the Northern Hotel and Hospital Workers Union, big union, back in those days, and our union was on the right of the party of the Labor Party, and I at that point I wasn't a member of the Labor Party. I was a bit one of these young kids who thought you yeah, don't need the parties, you know, don't trust the parties, you know, we'll work, workers will do it our, our ourselves. But we got. Um, but we got um, we did a lot of militant a- a- action through 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 her that period. But what became very clear to me who made the rules matter, you know, who makes laws that matters. And our union was affiliated to to the Labor Party. Um, so as the president, I would re- I represent our union different forums. Um, and what was clear to me it's that when our union was one of the was joined joined the right wing and voted for GST. Um, that really was a bit of a wake-up call, call for me. Not that rhetoric and being, you know, we're staunch isn't enough. You know, you actually have to intellectually understand and pay attention and be conscious of political decisions, how they affect the working class. And so that was a, 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 another turn, turning point point for me. So after that, when when we had the shock of we voted, we voted GST, because I just didn't really pay attention. I was the president of the union. I didn't really get involved in the party. But when our party went and voted, voted for GST, I thought, I mean, our union, I thought, hold on, hold on, stop, 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 stop. And then I started to be more active in the union in, in the political space. And what was clear when the Rogernomics were out, what they had called the neoliberals, and whether it's Thatcherism or uh, Ray or Reaganomics, you know, it, it 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 was a neoliberal dream. They couldn't believe it. They were on a, on on right. And this the the old, extraordinary thing is, it was run out out of the Labour Party. You know, there was no alternative, and it was clearly anti-worker, anti working class it was pro the one percent the ones at the top it's just just dreadful stuff so what happened in that so we so i i then joined the labor party as as an individual like being a union boy no points to sit i was sitting down the outside and grizzly and whining because no one cares right self-indulgent is what is what do you do so we got involved we formed a workers branch in the side the party I was the secretary of the affiliates in Auckland, you know, which was a big, a big faction. And so we ultimately um, rolled Preble, uh, Richard Preble, who was the who was the bobber boy for the government. And we, I didn't really mean to go out of that way, but essentially we formed a workers faction across the country with young work, work workers. And um, and so we had quite a big uh, group. Then we linked up with what they called the Economic Policy Network. I want to get into too much jargonisation, but it was Jim Anderton's um, net sort of, sort of network. So Jim and I met during that time. So we were the kind of the, you know, the young sort of militants from the shop floor, and we had hundreds of us. Um, and um, and Jim bought a more of a uh, the party loyal, 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 loyalists, the older people who are a bit more. Um, Theoretically, um, stronger were opposed more in an in, 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 in intellectual um, debate with the government. So those two forces, where we met, 
became the nucleus of quite a strong opposition against the new right within the party. And we could all, so our team, the people which I work with, that we were a, a, a able to run the numbers, run them, no, you know, because we're union boys and girls, so we knew how to, how to fight and how to roll the numbers in and how to do, because that's what, what is what, that, that's what we did as militant young workers. So we um, got to the point as the break. Then Jim resigned um, uh, from Parliament, or from yeah, well, well from from Parliament, and in outrage, which kind of was um, a thing. So he came and saw me up in Auckland. I was still, you know, the young two, and I said, "Well, look, you know, which I'm I come from that school." So I said to him, "Well, why don't you just why don't we form a new party then? So why so why don't we do that?" I said, "Look, if you do that, Jim." Let's go to the next election, try and get five, 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 5%. You win your seat, then we stick around, right? But the chances of doing that at that time was almost zero. But we said at least we die on our feet, you know? We don't die on our belly groveling and whining, you know? Get up there, line in the sand, let's have it, let's go. So that's what did. I left my job then, and I said I'll be your organiser. So, um, as you alluded, I was the um, founding president at the time. And so I left my job and just went full-time to organise things. And as you know, we got our, well, your listeners may not know, but um, we got our 5% and Jim, he won a seat. And so then after that, said, right, what we've got to do now is we've got to organise. It's first past the post back in those days. Um, there was a campaign for MMP, uh, the electoral system we had now. But we're still first past the post. The Greens were formed at that time. There were some other third, third parties around. So I um, took the task on of working with those other parties to pull them in into an alliance. First to get EMMP, and the second one is to form an electoral alliance for the next election, uh, which we achieved, as you know. And so in that election, which I managed, well, you know, was the campaign coordinator had for it, we got... Um, over eighteen percent, and but that was the year we also won MMP. So that changed the landscape of our politics, um, and there's all sorts of reasons why that was betrayal from Labor and National, because National and Labor they were competing to who was the most right, right, right wing. Extraordinary. So bringing the third parties together. The NLP, which was really the backbone of that coalition, and the Greens, of course, a new force, which was the future. Um, and even then, you knew it. We had Manamotahaki, which was the Māori party at the time, and um, and and the Liberals and Democrats, which were kind of you know um, old right wing par- par- parties from another age, still hang, hang hanging around. So, so that formed into a progressive alliance, and that became a new force, and um, and that was another. Adventure, all in itself, but that was the my, my role in those two groups. So I was basically the full time or, or organizer for the party side of the NLP and the alliance for nearly fourteen years. One so, of the interesting things about that time was the Labour Party at that time was probably the most well educated uh, parliament we'd had. And my my way of thinking, they were you tried to insult them. <laughs> Yeah, they were one of the worst, too. Well, from my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were then. I, I think is that there's a problem with the left. They are uh, they're proudly um, intellectually sort of lazy. 
You know, I, I think I, 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 on on the economic quest, I would well, put the problem with uh, David Wong. Yeah, but you know, he was um, he was a man, a mangari boy, a doctor's son. Um, have any policy? No, no, he didn't. But as I'm saying about the intellectual rigor um, from the left, right at that time, people were very excited about nuclear free and about apartheid and getting out of Vietnam and and uh, and and dawn raids against dawn raids and 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 um, and we had the setting up the Waitangi tri- Tribunal, you know, very progressive ideas. Um, and so what they did is is that you had a Different sort of leadership came into the Labour Party after the ninety-one uh, spring, uh, the eighty-one Springbok tour, and the social nature of the party changed. You know, um, articulate, educated white um, uh, professionals, middle class, and they become the dominant force amongst the MPs and in terms of how the party and it is today. And so what you actually had was, is where it was, a, like under Norm Kirk back in the 70s, it was a working, clearly a working class party of workers, you know. Um, yeah, Catholics, I remember Norman Kirk. Catholics. Oh, well, he was a hero of mine. I mean, he was the prime minister when I was alive. He, he died in the convent of which I was raised in. Um, so um, um, I'll claim a connection there. But... Um, but you know, socially conservative, unlike um, most of us. Um, uh, but you know, we're very, you know, no nonsense. You know, we've got to do the right. They knew who they knew who the enemy was. They didn't try to think that they were the same. You know, they they weren't aspiring to be rich and um, privileged. They just wanted everyone to get a fair go. And so, and so that was, um, you know, that their politics at the time, and certainly mine. And of course, they wouldn't recognise the party today or the left today. You know, I, I remember reading about the Labour Party, the first Labour government, the first cabinet. When they retired, they retired into state houses. They didn't retire into mansions. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, the privileged did. They didn't have anything. But you know, it was. Um, you know, there was a time where MPs were paid the same as a deputy principal of an intermediate school. That's a good system. I know it was great. It was great. Then they changed it to being they get they 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 um they then got paid um the, the higher salaries commission was formed for the top bureaucrats and then they did the MPs as well and look at that. So MPs now backbench M M MP who has no job job description. The people you list the MPs gets now three times more than a a. a Deputy Principal of a intermediate school. So that shows how the privileged classes, you know, when I worked in Parliament, I was a Chief of Staff for the Labour Party for a couple of years, but the same in, oh, well, in the Alliance Corp, 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 Corp as well, which I was the President of, and so used to attend those Corp, Corp, both Corp. And the biggest and most um, energetic discussions, focused discussions, where each year they would go and negotiate for for the MPs for their wages and conditions with the remuneration authority. It's called the UP remuneration authority. Now they changed the name, so it didn't look like that. Yes. And it's just, you know, you know, the, I mean, two hundred grand for a backbench MP, you know, and allowances about a grand a grand a week, and you just think, oh my 
God, you know, is that what we've become? So it's become, it's become a career, you know. And, um, you know, there used to be a time where that, you know, so uh, what's a principal on these? A deputy principal, probably 100K, you know, and so they're on, you know, with all their allowances and extra. The left community doesn't talk about, they may talk, the, the left will talk about child poverty, but they don't talk about um, inequality. They don't talk about. Oh, because the whole. Like they think you can, have, you can get rid of child poverty without getting rid of family poverty. Yeah, well, who's against not being supportive of, of, of stopping kids from being poor? It's like pets, you know? Oh, you know, if I, if I want to feel good about myself, I'll go and work for the SBCA, you know, like, you know, and we'll leave, I'll leave all my wealth and my, and my, and my will to save cats, right? Because the real problem is inequality from a system that is deliberately set up to exploit the poor and it just keeps continuing. We're going backwards. And when they talk about growth and about prosperity, it's only for 60% of the population. And actually, the rest are just getting further and further in, oh, in, into debt. So what we have with the left is not emancipation of the working class. It's, as, it's the welfare left. We look after you because you poor things. You can't do it your, yourself. And they pat them on the head. And this is the arrogance. And I've got to be careful. I don't want to get too fucking mad about this. But I think your listeners know that this is true, but people don't say it. You know, the system is rigged, you know. And see, how do you do with the youth of today? They have an education tax. It's called a student loan. And when they get it, it's 10% of their wages must go to pay those loans off. And then there's now a pension tax of 3% minimum for key, key we say, Haver, which is actually given to the Australian banks, actually, you know, to invest in capitalism. And the returns are, are rubbish. And the fees are astronomical. It's not even run by, by, by the state. It's run by international corporations taking compulsory, virtually compulsory savings from workers to then invest in capitalism around the world for the highest return possible. No social considerations, just maximise the profits, right? So the workers get caught into this vortex as if they are winning too because their, you know, their Kiwi saver is increasing. Say, no, 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 it's, it's just not. This used to be, and this is just a pretext to get rid of the publicly funded pensions because we'll privatise pensions. And, you know, I mean, God rest the soul, Mike, our, my, our Michael Cullen with his death this week. But this was set up at the behest of banks to have huge capital wealth to be able to invest in capitalism around, around the world. That's what it's for. And I'll give a few crumbs to the workers. So they all feel they're part of it. So that's, that's my outrage about the society's turn. The liberal left buy into all of this. The housing is an outrage. It is a crime. We don't build a lot more houses. We actually, they are not homes. They're investments. They're commercial investments. And it's not the, it's, 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 it's not the price of the homes. That's why they're going through the roof where the poor cannot buy homes or even the work, any a medium-sized person, I mean, a medium-wise wage, you cannot buy a home. Unless you've got parents who can put a deposit up for you, you've got no show. 
and you've got to perpetuate in a new class of renters, permanent renters. You've got to say third, third, third. It's going the opposite way, the worst way. But anyway, just say third, third because it's easier. You've got a third of people, which is about 4 or 40% actually when I was saying, but third people will never own their own home, will always be renters. One third with the banks will own their, other, their, their, their own home and nothing else, but another third have more than one. And that's where it all happens. So that's why the third have got one one home. They can borrow because capital is cheap. It's cheap. And they can borrow it for, for next to nothing, for 3%. So therefore, you go and borrow a million bucks. If your property is worth a million, you can go and borrow a, a, mil, a million bucks to buy another one. And you pay 3% on that. There's no term on it. And at 3% on a million dollars, you're paying 600 bucks a week. Then you can rent it out for 600 in Auckland at least. And so therefore, you're just doing fine. And the capital gains, of course, oh, we can't tax that. Who says that? Labor. And so what you do is you don't tax capital wealth, you tax workers. So the cleaners or the working people who are renting these homes at five to 600 bucks a week, taking out, and they've both got to work, a whole wage is going just for rent, you know? They've got to survive on the rest. They have no show of ever being able to raise a deposit, and that society. Almost two-thirds of MPs have more have investment homes because they can do it, because they're on 200 grand. The lowest paid of those MPs is on 200 grand. Worse than that, they get 30,000 bucks a year to pay interest off on a loan that they take off to get themselves an apartment in Wellington. See? The whole cycle of a liberal middle class which owns property, they never want to pay rent. I mean, they, they, they never don't get taxed on it. And so the poor are just paying taxes. The young people are paying, as, as I said before, 3% on superannuation, 10% for their education. They pay GST of 15% and they pay tax, either pay why take tax on top of that. They are paying a tax. The young generation now, the new workers, are paying 50% in taxes by indirect taxes and, 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 and direct taxes. Meanwhile, the wealthy, the property-owning classes, the capital class, the emerging capital class from the liberal middle classes is paying under 25%. That's why it's all wrong. One of the things that annoys me is that this government, if they wanted to have more opportunity to change things than any government we had, oh, they've got a majority. They've got a very popular prime minister, but they haven't. Basically, they aren't changing anything. Basic. No, 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 no. But they are not them. See, they are done well out of the system. You know. See, we think of Labour Party of the old years. You know, you have, you don't have soft hands. You work. You don't have any illusions. The MPs. Most of them have never done a non-salary job in their life. They're professional salaried people. You know, the whole left are salaried people. This is one reason why uh, identity politics is more more, uh, safe for them than uh, any... Well, they don't want to address the class issues, right? You know, their thing is we love the poor, but they smell, right? You know, they, they don't know any people who are poor. They just, they all live in the little bubbles they've created for themselves. That's why when a Trump come, 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 comes along, they don't understand it. It's a shock. What they've done is they, they've driven the alienation of the working class, driven it, driven them out of, of 
of, of the left. So it's nice and comfortable talking about social issues so we can be purer than thee. But what we do, do not address taxation on properties. No, but I've got two houses. I've got three houses. But what you do is get a property manager to manage it so you don't have to deal with the poor people who have to pay the rent to pay you to get richer. And you don't do an ounce of work. And what are the prop? I'll tell you how how the property managers work. Say you want to get a three hundred buck return. They, oh, they, oh, they, oh, oh, they'll tell t- t- you. Or the market rate for your for your rental accommodation here is six hundred bucks a week. Oh, really? See, absolves them of having having to set a price because they would feel guilty about to set the price themselves. Six hundred bucks for a working family to pay your rent, you know. And what the Labor government does or has done. They then get the state to subsidise the the land landlord. Oh, you can't afford the rent? We'll give the landlord a subsidy on top of their tax free state status. So actually, the taxpayer actually keeps reinforcing. And because the loans are so cheap for the rich, the poor, of course, are on credit cards at eighteen percent. But you see, your over, uh, overdrafts of eighteen percent. But the rich, they can go and borrow against their homes at three percent. See, there's different rules and the inequality keeps going. But you see, the MPs and those of the privileged left will not address these questions because it's not their problem. They you're, you're a member of a union now with, yes. with uh, Collins and David Seymour. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I didn't know they were members. I don't care. Um, that's the free speech union, right? It's just a... Yeah. Um, the union, the union itself, I don't think that anyone can keep a straight face and calling it a, un, a union. They might like, like to. Uh, the issue is about free speech, and I am a proponent of free speech. See, the right have made it their baby, and it's partly why I got involved. I won't have the right being able to take on free free speech unfettered as their issue. right? And I think the left, they do a disservice to the workers and to those who, who fight for change to allow um, censorship, you know, for all the reasons which they might think is fair. But as you know, Marvin, and I know with history, censorship and suppression of voice is always used by the powerful against, 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 against the forces of justice. Always. Always has, always will. So I'm against the now the hate speech really hard to get your voice heard if you're in poverty well they don't want to hear about about you right you know they want to pat you on the head and throw you a few coins for a bit a bit of it and tell and tell and tell and tell you that 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 you should be grateful right the deserving poor it makes them feel feel good um uh, you can tell that i just hate them about these things um but 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 my thing is about see i work about social justice right my my day job and my 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 work now um, is always about how we fight for the poor, the working poor. So I deal with expo- exploitation. So we're a new union of new movement, and I have been sued five times since April by bosses who want to shut me down from telling the workers stories. Right. So I know, and those who know your history in this country. And the one, the big um, one, the big big dispute that I was brought up on the nineteen fifty one lockout, you know. This press was censored then. Sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry. 
They couldn't talk about it. The press. No, you weren't allowed to talk about it. So for your listeners who don't know, this was a lockout of port work, work workers um, by by the ports, uh, supported by by the national government at the time. And what they did is they 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 locked them out. So it wasn't a strike. They locked them out. Then no one was allowed to talk about. It. You weren't allowed to support them. And they used to have a cop in every newsroom in the country and a check that they weren't reporting. Anyone who supported the workers with food or support, it was a crime. When they tried to do printing presses for, to put their side of the story, they, the cops would do raids and smash up the, the presses. Um, and so there's stories that didn't come out. And they broke them. And they deregistered the union stole all their ma- 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 money and scattered those workers um, um, off, off the wharf. They never got the job. That word was never allowed to be out, and it's still to this day, it's never really, that story hasn't been told. And I could tell you story after story after story, when it's used, it's always that censorship on work sites is actually what we do now. You know, workers aren't allowed to even discuss their pay rates. In fact, they're getting fired. You know, there's all these confidential, everything is confidential, 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 confidential. Even when you leave, you're not allowed to speak about them. You know, and because I go and seek justice for work for workers, they want to sue me because they don't want the story told. So that's how the capitalist class work now. That's interesting. Every time that something comes up with the government or big business, it's always business confidentiality. Mm, absolutely. So the most important decisions that are made are often made without people having access, the public having access. Well, they don't. It's deliberate. And so they go, oh, this is confident. Who says? Who says? Who says? Oh, it's commercially sensitive. What do you mean? You know? And so they'll never answer. See, it's just a given. And, um, and what we have is all the laws in this country Lots of free freedom of speech for right right wing corp corporations. You know, they get to buy the press and say whatever they like. You know, and uh, and they can set the scene up. You know, how many left political commentators are 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 are, are, well, are there in this country? Uh, are, are none. Um, you know, you look at all those um, shameless opinion right 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 writers in the mainstream press. I don't know in your part of the world in your in your town, but. Up in Auckland, it's just rabid right wingers all full of themselves. It's just disgraceful. So they get plenty, like Mike Hoskins. I mean, give me. I mean, the guys that you know. Anyway, so so our, our Sean Hannity. But what you have is they set the opinion pieces. You know, the, the, what the, all the news outlets, right? It's a dominant culture of of telling the story as as establishments see it. You know. And so that's what we've got. Anyone rises against that. So the hate speech. So why? So that's why. I, look, I wasn't a, um, a leading uh, figure in the free speech. I just support it. But I feel I had to step up my game on the basis of you know you can't can't stay silent because you and I know who determines what's hate and what's opinion. When we used to attack, um, um, uh, you know. Um, um, say South Africa about the apartheid state, you know, when the government supported it, you know, is that hate speech? You know, when we call say pedophiles in oh in the Catholic Church, is that hate speech? You know, if a Catholic Church then attacks women about who have having an abortion, they're going to go to hell. Is that hate speech? 
You know, it's in the eye of the beholder, right? Now, I know there are F-wits around, and they will say silly things. I weigh it up as those laws are already there. The laws are already there. Do you know how many times, Marvin, as those laws have been used in recent decades? I can tell you. One conviction, three charges in decades. It's never been used. So what this is, uh, oh, we have to kind of be careful about hate, so we need to do this. Well, really, you know, those laws are there. And I just think there's an element, and I don't like you, you, you using the word woke, because I think it's, um, it's an insult um, both ways. And, and I just think that we've got a sense of fundamentalism, you know, you know, and we punish anyone who puts a foot wrong. You know, and that we have, we're all flawed. We all make mistakes, say things we shouldn't say. And what we have now is a righteousness, you know, a, 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 and a vicious righteousness. And I think it's not so bad in this country yet, but we drive people out of their jobs because they say things they shouldn't. I think you've got to see things in the context of a person's their whole um, commitment, not just kind of anyone who makes a mistake must be forced to apologize, must be forced to demean themselves, must be, you know what? You know, I'm never going to buy into that. I'm just not. Um, and so I think the freedom of expression, the freedom of people to be able to to oppose the establishment, oppose things they support, even if I don't agree, agree with it. On the right, I don't agree with most of what they say. But you see, all change, as you know, Marvin, through all your years of politics, all change comes from conflict. It doesn't come. Change does not come out of the sky. It comes because people disagree or someone comes or people come along and say, this isn't right. This is unjust. And then it conflicts with those in power. Right. And therefore you have the debate and the conflict. No change comes without conflict. Then whether it's dawn raids, whether it's racism, whether it's sexism, anti-gay, you know, whatever it is, right. Change comes from people being confronted with it. And then, but you see, they've got a new factor on oh, it, could, it could be seen as hate speech because you're saying things that are hurtful to a, a religious group, for example. So that's why I use the example. Oh, really? So we say that the Catholic Church is full of uh, pedophile priests, you know? Is that now hate, hate crime? Yes, it is. It would be, you know, for example. Okay, but when does the Catholic Church say, oh, well, these women who are getting abortions, are you all going to go to hell? Is that hate speech? Probably. And so who, who determines that? Who makes the decision of whether it is or not? Well, I'll tell you who does, who, who makes that decision. A 19-year-old boy in a police uniform. I've been enough picket lines to know how, how, how bright that they are of making those sorts of decisions. So we are handing oppressive laws to, to, to children, in my view, you know, to interpret them. And the state always supports the establishment and power against those who are trying to fight for change. So I know they don't mean this is the consequence, but I'm very clear it is the consequence. Well, thanks a lot. Good like to end on. <laughs> um, thanks a lot for coming on the air, and we'll have you on again no, soon. No, we're all good. All right, brother. Well, all power to you, and I'm glad you're doing the show, and I'm glad that you guys uh, are carrying the torch forward, onwards and forwards, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Okay. Thanks, Matt. Hey, brother. Now I'm a union.
said what I am I say what I think that the company stinks Yes, I'm a union man When we meet in the local hall I'll be voting with them all With a hell of a shout It's out, brothers, out And the rise of the factories fall Oh, you don't get me out The company spies And I don't get fooled by the factory rules Cause I always read between the lines And I always get my way If I strike for higher pay When I show my card to the Scotland Yard And this is what I say This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.